This next hour, we bring you the Sports Report, a kind of public radio Olympics. I'm Barrett Golding. This is Hearing Voices, our first event, Swimming, with color commentator Scott Carrier. My wife, Hillary, is a beautiful swimmer, relaxed, graceful. She just sort of slimmers around on top of the water. I didn't know this about her when I met her. I knew she grew up on a lake in New Hampshire, but I'd never seen her swim until this summer when we spent a few weeks at the lake visiting her parents. She liked to swim at night, go far out in the darkness, and then turn around and swim back to the light on her parents' house. So this summer we were there at the lake, and my wife and her mother decided it was time for our three-and-a-half-year-old daughter to take swimming lessons. I said, no, she's too young. And my wife said, Mr. Switzer likes to start them at three-and-a-half. I said, who's Mr. Switzer? And my mother-in-law said, he gives lessons in the pool next to his house. It's a nice pool. He taught Hillary to swim. He taught all my kids to swim. He went to Harvard and then coached at a private school with a good reputation. I said, oh, well, then of course. And my wife said, Monday morning, we've already signed her up. You can come with us and see for yourself. He's a good teacher. So, Monday morning, we drove to Al and Betsy Switzer's aquatic school in Center Sandwich. The pool was dark blue, the color of glacial ice, 60 feet long and nearly ringed by mothers sitting in white plastic lawn chairs. There were about 18 kids in the pool, a couple of pretty college girls teaching the intermediate and advanced swimmers, and Mr. Switzer, deep tan, square jaw, big muscles, in the pool at the shallow end with the beginners, three boys and three girls hanging onto the edge, crying and shivering, or actually it was just the three boys who were crying. One of them tried to climb out of the pool, and Mr. Switzer pulled him back in, saying, you stay there, you stay right there, and don't move from that spot. That, of course, made the other two boys freak out even more, and one of them was crying for his mom to come get him, and Mr. Switzer pointed to the mom, and then pointed to the gate, and she popped right up and walked out. Five, five, head down. In the lesson, Mr. Switzer took the kids one by one and stood over them, moving their arms and legs through the water. He did this even to the kids who were nearly hysterical. Kick, 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 kick. Then he had them go under the water, keeping their eyes open to look and grab his fingers. Then he had them get out and walk over to the edge where the water was deeper. They were all standing there, shaking, holding their little hands over their little hearts. He was going to make them jump. Now listen, everybody. What you're going to do is you're going to jump to me and I'm going to catch you. All right? I'm going to catch everybody. Stand up, Alice. First, he told my daughter to jump. And she did, and just about landed on his head. She was kind of screwing around and having too much fun. Next, the other two girls, and they jumped pretty easily too. But then the boys, and the boys were afraid. They were just little kids who hadn't learned to hide their fear, what looked like true fear, not some sudden fright caused by a bad dream or a monster movie, but scared, silly panic, their bodies quivering like jello, their faces filled with grief. I'll catch you. Come on. Go. Jump. Jump. Go. Jump. Come on. Go. Jump. 
But they did it, or at least two of them summoned their courage, leaned into their fear, and jumped. For them, it was as wild and as real as it gets. But the other little one just couldn't do it, so they pushed him. What did I tell you? What did I tell you? What did I, tell you? What did I say? I catch you. Yeah, and I said I catch you. Did I catch you? Yeah. After the lesson, I introduced myself to Mr. Switzer and asked him about his methods. We, uh, as soon as we start working the arms with a three and a half year old, we're basically working with the arms the way we want them to work later on. And you saw today, a couple of the real criers, they don't know what they're in for. But then they find I'm a good guy. They're go they find that if I say I'm going to catch him or I'm going to do something, I'm not going to fool him. And see, this, uh, the classes you're watching this afternoon, some of those beginner one classes, by the end of this week, they'll all go off on the deep end. And most of them will go off from the diving board, which is one meter up, and uh, they'll swim to, the ladder, uh, swim to the ladder. Now, most of them will not have anywhere near a perfect arm stroke. Many of them will just kick to the ladder. But what that does is, is gives them, with a the head in the water again, it gives them that confidence that if they should fall off a dock, they can look around on the water and kick or somehow get to the, to the uh, point of safety. The second day, there was less crying. And by the second week, things had calmed down to the point where I started paying attention to the intermediate and advanced swimmers. Kids, mainly 8 to 12 years old, swimming laps, all practicing the same slow stroke, reaching far out ahead and pulling slowly back, relaxed, breathing rhythmically, relaxed. They were learning to swim gracefully, gliding across the pool like schoolgirls walking with books on their heads. They were all learning to swim exactly like my wife. I mean, he was strict. He was a strict teacher, but he's not mean, you know. I mean, he used to say things like, if you don't relax your hand, I'm going to break with a hammer. But you know that, I mean, he wasn't being mean. It was just, that's just what he would say. I mean, somehow, he has a sense of humor, and the, as a kid, you know that. I think probably the most important thing in his, about his teaching is that he does, he expects you to do it. And that... Kids know what you expect of them. If you don't really expect them to listen to you, they know that. Steven, I want you to fly. I want you to fly. Are you ready? Fly! Come on! Come on! The final part of the final lesson, Mr. Switzer took his beginning class to the diving board for them to jump and swim to the ladder. This is the mostest of the funnest. I don't mind. This is... You want to do this, don't you? This is the fun. You want to do this, don't you? Colin, Colin, you want to do this, don't you? That's good. Yeah, One, two, three, jump! Boop. And they all jumped, and they all swam. And then it was over. Now our daughter Alice has a card saying she's passed the beginner one level at the Switzer Aquatic School. Next thing I know, she'll be swimming far out into the lake at night.
This is Scott Carrier. Yeah, this one right here goes out to all the babies, mamas, 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 <laughs> baby mamas, mamas. Yeah, go like this. Stadium staple mashed up with ACDC by Go Home Productions. This is Hearing Voices with the Sports Report. The National Track and Field Hall of Fame commissioned sound artist Ben Rubin to make some audio art from athlete interviews. The result, a piece called We Believe We Are Invincible. Every step of your life, you thank it. How can I make each step in my race faster? No matter if you're washing a car, walking to the bathroom in your house, or going for a jog, no matter what you're doing, shopping for groceries, you, as a sprinter, you're always thinking, how can I be faster? I'm a high jumper. That's my thing. It's interesting. When I visualize the night before I meet, I always visualize in the third person and I'm outside of my body and I can see myself completing a jump from different angles, sometimes from behind, sometimes from the side. But when I'm actually in a competition, I visualize inside my body. I don't listen to music before I run. You know, a lot of guys you see with headsets on and stuff, I can't do that. That takes away from me. But I can put a song in my head and sing it, and it gives me that energy and that charge that I need. In order to beat your opponent, you got to know your opponent. You got to know them like the back of your hand if you want to know their weaknesses and their strengths so you can take advantage of the weaknesses and avoid them hitting you with their strengths. So I watch them while I'm warming up. He can run from the front, he can run from the back, he can run from the middle. 
get to the call room, put our bags down, everybody take your warm-ups off, get your hip numbers on, all right? Jumping up and down. Come on, muscles, let's get fine, let's get fine. We got a job to do, we got a job to do. Get out there, walk us to the track. We're walking, and then again, I'm walking behind everybody. I want to see everybody walk in front of me as we go to the track. So we're walking, walking. And you hear the spice on the concrete as we walk. We're going around. Yeah, yeah. We keep these spikes from warming them up like the tracks are burning out. They ain't doing up but getting warm. They're ready to grip this track. That's what's happening. So I watch them while I'm warming up. Watch him, see him doing the drill. Okay, okay, okay. You seem like you got a little pep in his step today. Yeah, 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 yeah. He coming out the hole a little fast over there. Just get me psyched up. Because if you see them coming out fast, you got to... Okay, I got to get ready. They bring the pain. They bring the pain. I'm going to get ready, too. Before I start the race, uh, the nervousness is making my heart beat fast, and it's making me want to breathe fast, so I have to slow down my breathing. I definitely have a nervousness right before, uh, you know, the gun goes off. You're sitting there just on edge, and you're almost at the point of shaking because uh, you've got all that adrenaline going. I'm the type of person that gets anxious because I get ready to run, but then when it's time to run, I'm not actually, I don't want to run no more when it's actually time. Man, I don't feel like running. That's why I used to go out fast, like too fast and, you know, end up dying. So anytime I get nervous or anxious, I analyze why I got nervous. So why am I anxious? Then once I actually realize why I'm anxious, it goes away. The flight check is when, when you get on a track, first thing you do is go through your flight check. And your flight check is making sure all the muscles and everything is firing or you don't feel any pain or nothing hurts or everything is on right. You check your shoes, from the shoes to your socks to your calves and your, your shins. How do I feel? Everything checks out. You go to your knees. How do they feel? Did I feel like I drank enough water before. You check your hamstrings, your quads. Does anything hurt? You do a couple of stretches or whatever is necessary. Do my legs feel like they're ready to run? You make sure your back is loose, your hands, you crack your knuckles, you adjust your neck, you adjust your back. Is there anything that really feels a little out of sync? Because you don't want it to be out of sync when you run, you know? By this time, I've shed my warm-ups. There's something really nervous in me about taking my warm-ups off. It's almost like that's the worst part is pulling the sweats over your spikes because I'm always afraid that they're going to get hung up or I'm not going to get them off in time. So it just really serves to give me a little extra boost of adrenaline. If you feel a nail, you know, a, a hangnail on your toe, you go almost to a panic state. Now, oh my God, I got a hangnail. It's just crazy because you become ultra sensitive to everything. But then you turn around and calm all of it down because then you have to be one with yourself and you have to be one with the starter. You have to be one with the track. You run the race probably through your head maybe once or twice. I'm supposed to be here, I'm supposed to be here, I'm supposed to be here. And then after you do that, I say, uh, I, I got this off a TV show, uh, engage the mechanism where I just kind of shut out everything around me. And it's kind of like the only thing I hear is my heartbeat. And, you know, I say a little prayer in that moment. And, you know, I just ask God to allow me to maximize my potential at this moment. I'm not asking for victory. I'm not asking, you know, for any special favor as far as winning and losing. But it's more or less just help me maximize my potential at this moment. And then it's race time. And if you're not ready, it doesn't matter at this point because you have to be ready. I want that adrenaline coming when he says, run this, take your mark. Because I only, I only got 10 seconds at, or 9 seconds at, the, at that point, you know. 
But if it's pumping, 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 then they say take your mark. Well, I'm exhausted. You know, once I get in the blocks, it's like, <gasps> I don't want to be exhausted. I want to be on fire at that moment. In that moment, when they say take your mark, set, set, I become the gun. So when that gun fires, it's almost like I'm the bullet being fired out of the pistol. And that's my reaction. When I hear that sound, it's almost like there's a firing pin smacking me in my butt and pushing me. I'm the bullet. And it's only me in the chamber. And when he says set, I just breathe all the air in. I take a deep inhale. Take one last look at my competitors in the lane. Now I'm focused. Just thinking drive and go, drive and go. And then I hold my breath. And then... Sweet, sweet, sweet. Drive, drive, drive. Pick them up, pick them up, pick them up. I let all the air out. And that's when I start running as fast as I can. When you're running and you're so relaxed in what you're doing to where a song can just pop into your mind about 30 meters. That is the, the ultimate point I think an athlete wants to be because that's when you get that peak performance. It's almost like everything is moving in slow motion and you're watching the birds kind of slowly fly by and you hear that song just whistling in your ear. When I take off, and I start to climb in the air, it all goes pretty fast. But once I hit that apex of the jump and my hips are up over the bar, time really slows down. I mean, you can just feel this rotation and it feels like someone's grabbed a hold of your hips and really given you a, a push, a boost up in the air. Come off the turn, I'm in the front, I'm in the front. Who they coming for me? They just stopping me like cheating. I'm in the front. So I'm just thinking, just get away, just get away, just get away. Turn on the afterburn. Hold on, hold on. I just stretch it out, start going. Get to the top of the curve. Turn on the afterburn. Hold on, hold on. 50 meters left in the Go. High step, high step. Kobe Miller come up. I hear a step. Powering down, powering down like a train. See him come up beside me at the peripheral. You gotta hold on. This is always happening. They're trying to get you at the end, but you can fight them off, you can fight them off. At the end, it's just compete, 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 and then lean at the tape. Go ahead, reach and go, reach and go, reach and go. Pump them all, pump them all, baby, pump them all. Get across the line, just smile out, smile out. And we get down to the tape. Got him like a half of a step. Well, that's that's the kind of stuff I live for. Though. I live for those intense moments like that, right there. It's hard to accept the fact sometimes that you are human, but it's true. And I've had a heart surgery in year 2000, but as athletes, and you can ask almost any athlete, they'll tell you, we believe we're invincible. Because if we go in there with any other thought, there's no chance of us accomplishing our goal. Because we have to believe, we have to confuse ourselves into believing that no matter what's wrong with you or what you're dealing with, it's not going to be a factor to what you're trying to accomplish. We believe we're invincible. I knew a guy back in college named Trey. Trey loved football. Trey was straight, 
like a lot of gay men, I could only pretend to pay attention to football with a fake smile and glazed-over eyes, which I'd spent a lifetime doing at sporting events and family gatherings in front of the TV. One Saturday afternoon, a mob of people gathered at Trey's apartment to watch the game. I waded across a room through crumpled Waterburger wrappers and empty Schaefer beer cans and sat next to Trey on the couch. For once in my life, I wanted to watch an entire football game and know exactly what was happening. I told him I needed every player's name, number, and history, every rule, call, reason for rule, reason for call, fumble, score, reason for score. I wanted to know what penalty and three yards pass meant and why everyone was on the field at one point and why they all left it at another. I wanted him to show me everything. He was thrilled. He leaned over and began speaking in my left ear. I kept my eyes on the screen. Time froze. The crowd, the room, everything except the television and the two of us ceased to exist. And Trey stayed there, explaining it all to me. One hour, two hours, three. With overtime, the game went well over four hours. With Trey's help, I was finally able to follow it all. What a feeling. Once I got home, I walked into the kitchen and drank an entire pitcher of crystal light. My roommates were all up. They were smoking pot, looking at a Japanese book about Jeff Koons, and listening to a terrible Daruti column tape. They looked over at me and asked what had happened. I decided to lie. I told them I'd done too many mushrooms, and they all laughed and nodded. But I knew the truth. I had watched an entire football game, beginning to end, even if it almost killed me. And I just might, one of these days, do it again. Mark Allen is online at markallencam.com. Coming up, downtown D.C. basketball and spin class screams. That's in a minute when we continue with the sports report on Hearing Voices. Hearing Voices is supported by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people, and the National Endowment for the Arts, which believes a great nation deserves great art. From NPR, this is HearingVoices.com. This is the Sports Report on Hearing Voices. Producer Katie Davis grew up in D.C. From her series Neighborhood Stories, here's a basketball diary. Spalding on sidewalk. And I know the guys are coming. They have a game today, and they show up at my house an hour early, itching to play. They are 15, 16, 17, and 18 years old, some lumbering and huge, others wiry in constant motion. Most of them I've known for a few years now. I know their nicknames, their jump shots, grades, sisters, brothers, and parents. That's cool, Coach. That's cool, Coach, y'all. My name is Oliver Perez, best point guard in the league. Antonio Dupree. Hardy Hobby. Tori Hobby. 
These kids are obsessive street ballers. They live at the court around the corner, talking more trash than making buckets. Most of them don't have the grades to play for their schools, and one has dropped out altogether. So we form the Adams Morgan Road Dogs and join a church league. It's bare-bones basketball, played in a dingy, too-small gym. We scrape together the money for jerseys, but don't have enough to put our names on the backs. In the beginning, I have only one rule. Anyone can play, and we'll get to play every game, as long as they have a positive attitude. The only other thing I say is that the most important thing is to have fun. This does not inspire anyone. It leaves them shaking their heads. Sean says, I just can't get behind having fun. I understand that, but we won't win, man. Ain't nobody trying to keep losing. Before our first game, I'm in a panic. I really don't know much about basketball. My brother Sam, who's promised to help me out, is out of town. So I'm choosing the starting lineup, how and when to sub in the kids, to make sure everyone gets in. And they know I'm lost and step right up. This is what we got to do every game. Put the best people in the game so we can get the lead. And then then after we got the lead, you know, we can put the people there. Yeah, we can sub some people, but it's about winning the game. It's not about letting everybody play because everybody don't get to play. Because when you play for school, Everybody don't get to play. Everybody don't get to play. To prepare, I do what comes naturally, read and research. I buy a copy of Season on the Brink, a year with Bobby Knight and the Indiana Hoosiers. Now this will tell me everything, I think. I hear all the time what a great coach Bobby Knight is. After five pages, I'm horrified. At every game, every practice, Coach Bobby Knight is throwing tantrums. He's throwing chairs and worse constantly humiliating his team. Get the F out of my sight is his favorite motivating line for his players. If that's what the best coaches do, then these kids are out of luck. When the guys miss a shot, lose the ball or foul, mostly I say, that's okay, honey, don't worry. And it's got to be embarrassing for them. The other coaches pace up and down, yelling at their players and the referees. I never say anything to the refs, and I never yell at my players. I figure there's enough harshness in their lives already. But here's what I'm wondering. Can my softer philosophy rally these guys? Nah, you ain't no coach. You just, you just somebody that support. Support make you like, if you mad, just, you'll be like, keep your head in the game and I think... Like, like a counselor. That's, that's your role. I'm more like a counselor? Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's your role. Oliver's right. Half the time, I call these boys honey or kiddo. I hug them constantly, even when they're dripping sweat. I'm their coach, but I'm more like their auntie. I wash their jerseys every week. I hold their watches, crosses, and earrings while they play. And the other day, I had to brush William's hair back into a bouncy ponytail. Now I know Larry Bird never gets asked to do that. On the bench, I'm thinking, help. The other team is dropping baskets every 15 seconds. My guys are dragging. They're demoralized. They're beginning to turn on each other, muttering, carping. 
What can pull them back together? Stay focused is not working. Should we go man-to-man or stay in the zone? I have no idea. I call a timeout and I ask the guys. Later they tell me, disbelief mixing with scorn, that a coach should not ask the players what to do. If you're going to coach, coach, says Sean. We get down by, what, 15? And the coach start asking the players, what should I do? <laughs> he asked us, what should he do? You know, in the game, you asking your players, you the coach, though, and you asking your players, what can I do? Okay, okay, so much for participation and democracy. I spend a few days feeling bad for my team. It seems like everything they get in our neighborhood is third rate, including me. I vow to be more assertive. I schedule my brother Sam to come to every game and help me out, and... I hire a guy to run our practices. That's right, I hire a man who played basketball in college. He's six foot six, and he talks about boxing out, setting picks, and flashing. When in trouble, hire a consultant. Now, first thing we're going to work on today, we're going to work on passing, we're going to work on rebounding, we're going to work on defense. So instead of chaotic street ball scrimmages, we begin real practices, drills, Dribbling, layups, left-handed layups, left-handed dribbling, all the basics. This is a team-building year, I say to the guys. They look at me and groan. There's little tolerance for losing in their minds. And maybe in my mind, there's too much tolerance. And so we go, teaching each other about this game. By mid-season, we're losing every week. One team, Southeast, blows us off the court playing so smoothly it looks choreographed. They have what the kids call hops and handles. They can jump and dribble brilliantly. And they hopped and handled us right up and down the court to the tune of 105 to 70. And you be the main one complaining. You be the main one moping. You after every game. There's raw emotion when we lose. Glares, pouting, finger pointing. And hugs do not work at this point. The hardest thing, though, is that every time we lose, the post-game talk settles on one point, the referees. It's a mantra for the kids. The referees cheated. We lost because the referees cheated. Here are Wiley and Clayton. He wasn't calling nothing. I mean, he was calling everything on us, but not for us. And all the other team was doing was just collecting their points off of that. He was just straight cheating, like... We was getting fouled. I know I got punished that game because they kept stealing me. I ain't getting go to the line but one time, and that was because of the other one. Do you really think a referee would cheat? Yeah, if they pay them because that's what happened in our football season when we was down at Francis. They paid the referees to cheat in us. That's why we never, we ain't never winning no games because they kept cheating. So, To my mind, the refs are professional, and they're paid, and they're careful. So what do you think? I think that's a crock, cause that 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 ref was cheating. Mm-hmm. Everybody on the team got fouled, and nobody got sent to the line. We was getting clean blocks, and he was calling them as fouls, and they kept going to the line, cause they foul line shooters. And so it goes. My response is to keep saying, the minute you think about a call, you lose your focus. But you know what examples do they have? 
Dennis Rodman, Carl Malone, Charles Barkley, pitching fits, whining, arguing with the refs. For my guys, the referees are the only explanation. They don't look at themselves. And so this becomes part of what I'm trying to teach them. And maybe, maybe it's part of what they're trying to teach me, that things are not always fair. In our neighborhood, more than a quarter of the children live in poverty. Just look at our playground. The swings are broken. There's exposed electrical wiring in the sandbox. The basketball court is cracked, and the field is so dusty and grooved, it looks like Mars. Go up to a wealthier, whiter part of the city, and the courts are smooth, the backboards new, and the fields green. So, you know, who am I to tell these kids that it's a totally even playing field? What I do keep saying is this. Look, this is the game you're in, and you have to figure out how to play it as best you can. You have to be so good that no one can call anything on you. Outplay, outthink them all, including the referees. And maybe the game is stacked against you, I say, but you can still win. No, y'all didn't. Who do you think you are? Mr. the big star. We finally win a game, and it feels really good, intoxicating almost. We drive home with the windows open, shouting out on a cold Saturday, laughing at each other. In the game we win, the guys are playing like a team, passing three, four, and five times before shooting. No one is heisting the ball. They've stopped carping at each other, started supporting each other, for the most part. Sam a petty dude. Look at Sam, man. Sam taking up two lanes. One thing, though. As the boys become more graceful about the game, I notice I'm losing ground. After one hard-fought loss, I ask Clayton what happened. Now, Clayton's always been one to blame the referees. This time, though, he only says quietly, I shouldn't have missed that layup. Now, this is an enormous step, an epiphany, really. And I feel a little guilty because I'd sort of been hoping he'd start to rag on the ref some because I'm still riled up about this one call. I actually got up and argued it and was told to back off or risk a technical. I noticed that the boys are getting better about sitting on the bench without chanting, put me in, put me in, put me in, put me in. I, on the other hand, have to fight this creeping urge to play my five best players the whole game. Because if I did, we'd have a better chance at winning. When one of my most elegant players leaves the team to spend more time on homework, I find myself telling his father, you're right, you're right, school's more important. But I'm thinking, gosh, couldn't you just let Michael finish the season because we really need him? Another kid has to meet his probation officer on Thursdays, our practice day, and I call the caseworker to see if I can't get that appointment switched. Turns out, though, he's court-ordered to boot camp. Another player lost. Clayton, you're overplaying, Clayton. Step back, step back, step back. Step back. Step up. There we go. Come on. There we go. There we go. Look up, dog. So the guys and I seem to be meeting somewhere in the middle. They are listening to me, and I am taking cues from Clayton. them. Clayton! Take that, man. And I wish this story could have a Hollywood ending about how this scrappy team with coaching from the heart comes together and begins to win. But mostly we lose. We just are losing better.
And so I'm trying to figure out how to have a party at the end of the season and give out some awards that won't make the guys feel too lame. And mostly how to convince them to play for me again this summer. Because I'm thinking that now, with these fundamentals under our belt, we'd have a better shot. I have my eye on a guy at the court who's got a really good outside jumper, and another one who's a good rebounder. And I'm starting to think that maybe this summer, maybe we'd have a shot at beating Southeast. Hey, Tito, look back, Tito. Look up, look up, look up. Oh, yeah, this will go. We will go. We will go. Right, this cut goes out to all y'all that's been missing us for mad years. One love, yo. Yeah, that's right. He's got a game. PE 1998. If man is the father, the son is the center of the earth. In the middle of the universe, then why is this verse coming six times rehearsed? Don't freestyle much, but I write them like such. Word. Amongst the fiends controlled by the screens, what does it all mean, all this I'm seeing? <laughs> Human beings screaming vocal javelins, sign of a local unraveling. Uh-huh. My wandering got my wondering with crisis and all this crisis. Hating Satan never knew what nice is. Check the papers, well, I bet on ISIS. More than your eye can see and ears can hear. Year by year, all the sense disappears. Nonsense perseveres, prayers links with fear. Beware, two triple O's. It might feel near. good, it might sound a little something. But damn the game, if it don't mean nothing. What is game? Who got game? Where's the game in life? Behind the game, behind the game. I got game, she got game, we got game, they got game, he got game. It might feel good, it might sound a little something. But the game, if it ain't saying nothing.
Public Enemy with Stephen Stills from the soundtrack to He Got Game. This is Hearing Voices. I hope our sports report has inspired you to get in shape. Just remember, in spin class, everybody screams. That's the truth. Okay, two minutes, everybody. Two minutes, check your bikes. The truth. Movies for your ears. Online at thetruthapm.com. Hi, nice to see you. Hi, you too. How's it going? Good. Good. Actually, um, I, oh, I think you're on the bike I signed up for. Oh. Yeah, I signed up for 19. Is that this one? That's the one you're on. Yeah. Oh. I'm so sorry. I just... Well, they're all the same, right? Well, this is my favorite bike, and I, I got here like half an hour early to sign up for it. Oh. You did sign up for yeah. a bike, right? Uh, yeah. I think I, I'm actually 18, so... Oh. I guess we're neighbors. I guess we're gonna... Wanna make everybody... Yeah. 